0: morning. morning. Take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 7 this morning. You can find that on page 980 if you're looking in the pew Bible there in front of you. We are picking back up where we left off last week. We are studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the church this is the church that he started about 10 years earlier in the city of Philippi, a city which is in kind of the northeast of Greece. And since this is a letter, it obviously starts with greeting. And as we saw last time, that greeting is primarily concerned with identity. Who's the letter from and who is the letter for? Author and audience. We tried to make the case for 50 minutes that identity Matters. Your sense of who you are, your sense of your own identity shapes your response to everything in life. Who you are, your identity is very important. And this book, in this book that is about gospel generated joy, Paul's going to use that word for the first time today. We're arguing that your joy is dependent on your identity. So, who are you? Paul, in introducing himself and in naming his audience, tells us Christians are those who are slaves of Christ, we saw, who are saints in Christ, and then we saw that all of that comes only by the grace and peace from Christ. We're going to look more at some of that grace here this morning. But how do you know if you really have received and experienced this grace and peace from God? Well, the following verses are going to give us a couple of the clearest signs, and we're going to zero in and focus on one of them. Grace and peace from God results in communion with the people of God. That's going to be our word for today, communion. We're going to look at that from a couple of different angles to see what results from the identity that we looked at last week. If we're slaves of Christ, if we're saints in Christ, only as a result of grace and peace from Christ, well, what follows? Paul's going to say that communion follows. There's a couple other clear signs here that you know you are in Christ. And we're going to look at Paul's thankfulness and we're going to see Paul's joy. He's going to express both of those for the communion that he has with the Philippians. So the first thing he does after greeting the Philippians is he expresses his gratitude and his thankfulness for the Philippians. Why does he do that? Why is he thankful? Well, as we seek to understand and experience this gospel-generated joy, we're trying to discern where this joy comes from. Why is Paul so joyful and so thankful? It's because of this communion that he shares with the Philippians. So we're going to look at four different areas in which they share communion. We're going to start with their communion in prayer As he prays for them, then we're going to see that communion in prayer is a result of their communion in the gospel. I'll explain what that means. And that communion in the gospel is a result of their communion in confidence, which once again is a result only of their communion in grace. So communion in grace leads to communion in confidence, leads to communion in the gospel, leads to communion in prayer. We're going to work through that in the reverse The point is that individual identity in Christ, last week, always results in corporate identity of communion with the saints in Christ. Identity results in communion, or community. Identity results in community. In Christ always leads to in church, or in Christ always leads to with Christians. Joy is dependent on identity. Identity results in communion. And that means, if all this is true, that means that joy is largely dependent upon communion. The joy that you experience to a large degree is going to be affected by your experience of communion. Do we understand what a gift it is that we have here? Do you delight in the communion that you share with your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you think of them with joy? Do you love them and yearn for them as Paul does? I want to be like Paul. I want to experience Paul's joy, which means I need to know his identity as a slave and a saint, which means I need to experience and delight then in this communion. So we're going to study this communion together as we seek the Lord and then what our union with him causes in our communion with one another. So let's read what the text says first. It's short, nice and short this week. I'll read it for you. Uh, we're le- reading in Philippians 1, I'll read it starting in verse 3. I'm going to stop just kind of in the middle of the thought in verse 7, and we'll come back and pick it up uh, next time. Philippians 1, 3 through 7. This is what God has to say to you today. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. If you would, bow with me, and let's start first with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We believe that your word is an inspired word. We believe that it is a word without error. We believe that in your sovereignty, it is the word that you have for us here today. So Father, we ask for you to speak through this word. Father, I pray that I would be secondary I pray that you would be central and primary. I pray that your word would be our focus. I pray that every word I say would be in accordance with your word, Lord, and that you would take that word and apply it uh, to our hearts. Father, show us the great communion that we have with one another because of the great union that we have uh, with you. Father, teach us, and in teaching us, help us to see Jesus, and help us to know Jesus, and help us to love Jesus. Uh, We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so we start with prayer. We share communion in prayer. Though Paul doesn't actually get to the actual content of his prayer in verse 9, we'll see that next time. He first wants them to know both that he prays for them and how he prays for them. Look at verse 3. One of the first and main things Paul wants the Philippians to know is that he is thankful for them. And so he gives thanks to God for the Philippians. And read that in light of our context. Don't forget where Paul is. Don't forget verse 7, 13, 14, and 17. Paul is in prison. Literally, the Greek says that Paul is in chains. He has terrible immediate circumstances, and yet he gives thanks. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what this is going to be. We'll move this down here and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we don't really use this word for it in our circles, but in many circles, the Lord's Supper is often called the Eucharist. Eucharist. Well, that's the first word of verse three in the Greek. Eucharist means simply to give thanks. So when Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, instituted the Lord's Supper, he took bread, and when he had Given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. The word there, given thanks, is Eucharist. And that's the same word that Paul uses opening up verse 3, right? You, E U, just means good. Charis means grace. The word literally just means good grace. In other words, this Eucharist is acknowledging that God's grace works. Well, it is good, and since it works, we are then thankful for it. Good grace. We're talking about prayer. We'll get there in a second, but this is important first. Paul gives thanks for them when he remembers them. Verse 4 says he remembers them in prayer, and then the end of verse 4 says that he makes that prayer with joy. There it is the first of many uses of this word that is uh, one of the main themes of this letter, this letter about joy. And remember, this word is kera. So we're keep this in mind. This is a little bit of Greek. Sorry, I do this too much probably. They say don't do this. I don't care. Keras, grace. You charis, Theo, give thanks. Kera, joy. But they're all different forms of the same word. All right. Paul is in miserable circumstances. He is facing his death, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, and yet he can pray with joy. And the point that I want you to see is that he can pray with joy. He can have this joy because even in these terrible circumstances, he is still thankful. That's, that's big. I recommended a book in the email back in November titled The Secret of Spiritual Joy. Wow. Wow. I talk about not being worried about overpromising, right? That's a pretty good title of a book. I just swing in for the fences and no holding back. I want to know what the secret to spiritual joy is. And it just tells you on the back cover. It says gratitude. The book says that gratitude, the author argues, is the foundation of a vibrant, healthy faith. So Paul is in prison. He's giving thanks Why? How can he do this? Well, it's because of charis. It's because of grace. Paul understands who he is. He understands what he deserves. He also understands who Christ is and what Christ has done, and he understands what he has now received in Christ based upon what Christ has done for him. If you understand grace, we talk about it a lot, We don't really understand it. I talk about it every Sunday. I'm still working on understanding it. Grace, right? God's unmerited favor given to you when you only deserve death and hell. If you understand he gives you goodness when you deserve only badness, well, then you will be thankful. If you understand that God is both absolutely sovereign and absolutely good, And thus, in every circumstance, if you are in Christ, he is working out all things together for your good, then you will be thankful. And again, the cross just proves all of this to us. The cross proves that God is for us. And if you can get that God is for us, For you, when you were only against Him, if you can get that He gives you life when you chose and deserve death, then you will be thankful. And it is that thankfulness, circumstance independent thankfulness, that will then produce and create. Joy, and we're defining joy with this new song we just sang kind of, right? Joy is the, the settled certainty and conviction that all is well, all will be well, all is well, all must be well because of Christ. So charis leads to you. Eu eucharisteo leads to Ra grace to thanks to joy. Gratitude is the secret. Paul knows it, and so he gives thanks. That's why Paul can say elsewhere some of these crazy things that he says. Ephesians 5.20, he says that we are to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah. Does that, I mean, does that mean at 6 o'clock in the morning when the neighbor cranks up the giant muffler beside my house and wakes me up at 6 o'clock in the morning when I bet the bed at 3 o'clock before and I'm kind of, am I supposed to somehow be thankful? What in the world does that mean? What do we do with this always and everything only if God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely good? I've got to get it in my brain that somehow in God's sovereignty he ordained that muffler to wake me up at 6 in the morning. And there's a reason. Do I really believe that all things are working out together for good? Not all the time. Or what about 1 Thessalonians 5.18? Paul says, give thanks in good circumstances. All circumstances. Everything. How forced is that concept to most of us? Paul is giving thanks, even in prison, because he knows Jesus And he knows that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it is out of that thankful joy that he then prays for the Philippians. Why does he pray for them? Verse 5. Look at verse 5. Because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, that will be our next point. But we've got to first look at that word, partnership. Look down in the middle of verse 7 as well. You see down there in verse 7, it says, You are all partakers with me of grace. It is the same word. Partnership and partakers in the Greek is the same word, and it is the word koinonia. And that is why that word is why we are talking about communion. Koinonia means communion. So Paul literally thanks God for their communion in the gospel. For the last four weeks in Sunday school, Henry has been teaching us about the doctrine of the communion of the saints. And last week in the sermon, we talked about being in Christ. And don't forget to be here next week when my brother-in-law will be in town to teach us just on union with Christ. I'm really looking forward to that. We have this, this union with Christ. We are in Christ, which then leads to communion with one another. It's a communion that is based on On this union, as Henry said. So the basic idea behind this word, koinonia, is that it means common, or it means shared, right? So when you share something in common with others, that thing unites you. It binds you together. Uh, Derek and I in the back, we can't help it. Like we're talking, and we just start talking about basketball, right? Because we both love college basketball, and so that thing unites us together, and so we talk about that thing that we share in common. Right, so it's just something that unites you and binds you with others. So koinonia can mean partnership as they translate it, eh. but it's generally a more relationally intimate term, meaning fellowship or participation, as we'll see later, or communion. It means to share in something. If you own shares in a company, you have a stake in it. You are part of it. Thus, you are invested in it, and so you care. Because of your share. In the same way, if we are in Christ, we are part of him, we are invested, we are connected, we care. And since we are not alone in Christ, but are part of all the saints in Christ, we then share also in them. You are part of the people of God. You are invested, and that's supposed to lead to care and concern. And this first point that we're finally really getting to is that Paul first shares with them in prayer. We're going to look at his great love and affection for the Philippians kind of at the end and next time specifically. But this is just this love he has for them is not just some sort of passive feeling. This is an active love. He loves them and so he prays for them. He cares for them, and so it just naturally follows that since he loves and cares for these people, since he believes that God is all-powerful, and since he believes that prayer works, he prays for them. We have communion in prayer, ideally. Do we actually? Because again, let's, let's just be honest, right? We, we don't pray. I read every book that there is on prayer, and I leave feeling guilty after I read every single one of them. Uh, We just don't take prayer very seriously. When's the last time you prayed for someone who wasn't you or a family member? When is the last time you prayed for your fellow church members, those whom you have joined together in covenant and thus have communion, union with? Most of us probably think that this is kind of an optional thing, but it's not. James 5.17 commands us to pray for one Another, do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ in Woodside? And honestly, I think they just, you know, don't answer. Honestly, are you thankful for your brothers and sisters in Christ at Woodside? Do you express that thankfulness, right, both to them and to God? When you think of your church, and of course by that we mean the people, does it, do they bring you joy? Do you really delight in the communion that you have with brothers and sisters in Christ? This is what we read in 1 John. According to 1 John, this is one of the clearest signs that you are in Christ. People who actually love Jesus also love the people of Jesus. And people who love the people of Jesus pray for the people of Jesus. Are you praying for the people of Jesus? Pull out your bulletin. Look there in the bulletin. Someone's going to get upset about this. Don't get upset about it. I'm telling you in advance that no one's allowed to be offended. On the inside of the back cover, horizontal, this is mine. This is what I use. I am creatively and artistically challenged. If anyone wants to take this and make it look good, I will send you the file and please fix it. For me, here's the prayer calendar that I use. Sticking to this means, at minimum, that I am praying for every member of Woodside at least once a week. I am by nature lazy and distracted. I am by nature a procrastinator. So I'm the type of person who has to have a Bible reading plan to follow and check off, or right? I know I won't do it. I have to have something like this in front of my eyes to keep me accountable to pray. I find these these helps um, very helpful. Uh, try taking this, you can rip it off on the back, you just put the link. put it on your fridge, Put it on your desk, shove it in your Bible, wherever it is that you spend time with the Lord, and consider adding a few minutes to your prayer time, praying for those whom you are officially in communion with at Woodside. If you don't know exactly what to pray for them, well, there's Paul's prayers at the bottom. Remember, we talk a lot about how our prayers frequently don't align with Paul's prayers. Here's a model for how Paul prays for the people that he loves. Also, though, if you don't know what to pray for them, maybe you should get to know them so that you can know what to pray for them. Or how about this? I would bet maybe for almost all of you, every single one of you, I bet there's a name on this list that you can't even place. Good. Figure it out. Go meet them. Introduce yourself. Talk to them communion. Know your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then use this helpful tool to pray for one another. Again, also, if you're not a member... Don't get offended. right? I, I pray. I do pray for other people, uh, long-term attenders and the like. I send out that email every Thursday to a lot more people that are on this list. If you reply to that email and give me a prayer request, I pray for that on the spot and then continue to pray for it in the days that follow. So I am happy to pray uh, for other people, but we're trying to emphasize that membership matters. These are the people that before God, I will give an account These are the people that I am responsible specifically to pray for and care for. I should pray for others. I should care for others, of course. But I am specifically tasked with the oversight and the love and the care for these people. So my primary attention has to go here. So if you want to be on the list, it's simple. Join the church. Come talk to me afterwards. And I would love to talk to you about church membership. Membership matters. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. See if this tool could help you do that. If I remember, in a month or two, I'll bring this up again and make you feel guilty about not using it. Um, But give it a shot. Try it. The point is that we are supposed to have communion in prayer with one another. We all struggle with that. Maybe this tool could, could help a little bit. Pray for others. Simple, not very brilliant point. But listen, Pray for others also, and you yourself will find great benefit. One of the great difficulties of any sort of suffering or depression or general tendency, if you're, if you're like me, it's our tendency then to kind of turn in and focus only on ourselves, right? It just feels like the most natural thing to do. Things are hard right now. I'm struggling. I need to focus on those things. I need to focus on me. Uh, things are hard right now. I'm probably the only person who has ever experienced or thought such things. I better not let anyone else in on this and and so on. And we just turn increasingly inward. But notice what Paul is doing. Great problems. Many of you have probably not ever been in prison. Paul's in prison. He's sort of on death row. He's going to get out, but he doesn't know that. He's facing the possibility of his death. And his focus is on them. This feels so backwards and counterintuitive, but it's actually liberating. The more I focus on myself, the more miserable I get. The more I focus on my problem, the more my broken brain can take this problem and then just magnify it to all sorts of world-ending levels. But in the discipline of intercessory prayer for others, that my attention is forced and diverted away from myself and away from my own problems and then focused on others. And surprisingly, the less I focus on my problems, well, the less significant those problems seem. The more I focus on the problem of others, right, the smaller my problems get. You see, we, we think focus on ourselves It goes terribly. We focus on others, and we actually find great benefit to ourselves as well. Why is that? It's because that's how you were wired. It's because that's how you were created. Because that's what Jesus does. As we're going to see in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, he's the one that we were supposed to be like from the beginning. We were created in the image and likeness of God. We messed that up with our sin. Jesus is the image of God. We were designed to be like that from the very beginning. And we see that that design is other-focused. And things always work better when they work according to their design. Focus on other people. You'll find that you focus less on yourself. Pray for other problems. And you'll find that your own problems seem less significant. It's counterintuitive, but it's biblical. We turn out. And one of the best ways to start doing that is prayer. Paul prays for the Philippians because he loves them. And he prays for them with great joy. He prays for them with that deep, settled confidence that all is well. And so he seeks the Lord on the behalf of the Philippians. That's communion in prayer. Second, they have communion in the gospel. Back to verse 5. We started to look at this verse to finally get to our word koinonia. He gives thanks for them, and he thanks God specifically for their partnership, better yet their communion in the gospel. And this is one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter. He's not just thankful for them in some vague, undefined sense. He's specifically thankful for this reason. That from the first day, the very beginning, which we looked at two weeks ago in Acts 16, Paul again first arrives in Philippi. He starts the church from that first day all the way up until now. And the writing of this letter, over 10 years later, the Philippians have partnered with Paul in the gospel. What exactly does that mean? Or what exactly does that look like? Peek down first to 127. Here's a great picture of what Paul means in chapter 1, verse 27. He's encouraging them uh, to a walk that matches their talk, a walk worthy of the gospel, a life that reflects that gospel of Christ. He's encouraging them to unity, that they would be, he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In verse 29, below that, he encourages them that they have been granted. Remember, that word just means graced. They have been graced with the privilege Of suffering for Jesus. Verse 30 they are engaged in the same conflict that Paul is. So there is a communion, there's a fellowship, there's a joint participation in the gospel that they, the Philippians, share with Paul and that we then all share with one another. And we're about to see the foundation for this communion in a moment. Our communion in the gospel is a result of our communion in grace. We'll get to that, which means that Paul must be saying something more here than the fact that we share in the blessings of the good news of the gospel, right? In talking about their partnership in the gospel, he specifically means their partnership in the furtherance of the gospel, their partnership in the work of the gospel. Guys, that's that's what Paul is all about. Paul is convinced as he writes in 1 Corinthians 15:3 that the gospel is of first importance. Paul is convinced Romans 1:16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and the implications of that short little phrase are eternally huge. The implication is that we first need salvation, which means that we first don't have salvation. There's something that we need saving. From. And as he turns a couple verses later, we see that that thing is actually the the wrath and the judgment of God. We need to be saved from God Himself. The implication then is that the gospel is the only thing that can do that. The gospel is the only thing that can bring us this salvation. And the implication of that is that anyone who dies apart from the gospel, again, which just means the good news, which we know just means Christ, God's provision for salvation, the forgiveness of sins through his life, death, and resurrection. Again, that's the gospel. God saves sinners by sending Jesus Christ to live, to die, and to rise again in our place for the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel, the good news of how God saves in Christ. If he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except by him, that then means that apart from him, Apart from the gospel, people die and go to hell. It's just, it's biblical. It's it's there. We want to ignore it. But we can't. It is only Jesus in the gospel that can rescue anyone from an unimaginable, indescribable experience of eternal separation and suffering. Do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that there is such a thing as hell? That Christ is the only hope and the way out of that thing that we all deserve, that we have all chosen freely with our sin and our rejection of God. Again, I've said this a few times lately because I'm convicted about this. I spent... A lot of the morning reading like 50 pages of an evangelism book that that Joanna gave me because I'm just reading everything I can on it because I'm so aware of my weakness in this area. Do we believe that people who die apart from Jesus spend an eternity separated from God? I'm not sure if we do. But Paul actually believed that. And so he gave his life to the spreading of that gospel through the speaking and the sharing of the good news of Jesus. And so he pours out his thankful heart to God because of the Philippians that they, from beginning to end, have partnered, have communed with him in that work. What does such a gospel communion look like? Well, first, we've already seen this. Look at verse 19. Paul has been praying for them, and in verse 19, we see also that they have been praying for him. Again, gospel communion means prayer. Pray for the gospel to go forth from our church. Pray for me as I proclaim the gospel in this pulpit Sunday after Sunday. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are inviting people to church, who are building relationships in their homes and schools and workplaces for the purpose of sharing this life-saving good news. Which, by the way, means praying for all of you because this is something that we are all called to do. Pray for your missionaries, which is why Megan is introducing to your uh, us to our missionaries. Meet Brad and his family, and pray for Brad because they have given their life to reaching people who don't have the gospel here in Queens. Right? Pray for the gospel to go forth. The Philippians did it, and so they pray uh, for Paul, and that is one of the main ways that they partner with Paul. But that's not all that they do. They also get practical. First, look over at chapter 2, verse 25. Paul's suffering. Paul's in prison. I imagine the prison's pretty terrible, uh, especially back then. So, what do they do? And they send him Epaphroditus to care for him and to minister to him in his need. Who gets that job? Hey, go, go to prison with Paul, take care of him. I'm good. Let's send VJ. Let's send somebody else. Um. Epaphroditus goes to prison. They sent literal personal assistance. That is literal communion together. They sent someone to share with Paul. But not only to share his presence. Next look over at chapter 4, verse 14. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Here's the word again. Here's koinonia again. They had fellowship with Paul's troubles. They had communion with Paul's troubles. I mean, that doesn't sound like the kind of communion that we'd like to have, uh, but the Philippians did, and how did that express itself? Look at verse 15. Man, they put their money where their mouth is, or they put their purses where their prayer is. They put their wallets where their word is. I can keep going. Um, Second part of verse 15, he keeps going. There's partnership. You see partnership? That's the word again. Here's koinonia. He says, no one else entered into communion with Paul in this way. But the Philippians did, and they supported him financially. Verse 16, they did it again. Verse 18, they've just now done it again, sending money with Epaphroditus to support him in his ministry and his suffering. That's communion in the gospel. It is a personal and practical and material communion. They sent him help in the form of a man and money. They didn't say, hey, we love that you're doing that. Uh, Go in peace. Be warm and be filled. No, they very much met his real and literal needs. Because they too believed that the gospel was of first importance. They too believed that the gospel was the power of God for salvation. And they loved Paul. So they helped him. They they cared uh, for him. Right? So many of us, again, this is something we're trying to explain about what actually knowing the Lord means. I was talking with a lady about this last week, right? Knowing God and being a Christian necessarily then includes loving God, right? And again, not pop song love, like I have this strong just affection for you, but like an active love. My knowledge leads to my love, which leads to a lifestyle that has been lived in service of him. My love Demonstrates itself, however imperfectly, in a life that is increasingly lived for Him. You can't uh, say you know Him if you don't love Him, and you can't really say that you don't that you love Him if you're not in some way living for Him, because that grace shapes us and transforms us. They love Paul, and then they put that love into action, practical partnership and fellowship with him in the furtherance of the gospel. If we are in Christ, that means we are with Christ's people. If we are in union with him, that means we will be in communion with one another. And if it is his mission to seek and save the lost, that then means that it is our mission to seek and save the lost. His last big words, Matthew 28, go and make disciples. That's the task of the church, that we are his ambassadors. That means that we represent him. And what do ambassadors do? They speak. That's our job. If you are in Christ, that means you are on mission. Do you actually believe that there is such a thing as hell? Do we really believe? And again, I'm the first to confess that I'm not sure that I do all the time, based upon my lifestyle. Do we actually believe that everyone goes there apart from knowing Christ? If we did, we'd speak. Union with Christ means communion with the saints. And again, this isn't like a guilt trip you're terrible. I'm standing here as a co terrible person with you, and I struggle. With this, There is a disconnect between our profession and our life and our, our confession to those who are around us. We all have a role to play in the furtherance of the gospel. We share this communion in the work of the gospel. Number three. Oh, let's rip down that clock one day. Number three. That last one was kind of discouraging. Again, I, I so... Struggle to take this command to speak and share seriously. I'm desperate to grow in that area. I'm weak. I'm prone to failure. I am always falling short, which makes me really love and need this next point. You need this next point because we also share a communion in confidence. Look at verse six, one of my favorite verses. And I am sure of this. Some translations say, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, that's it. That's, that's what I need. That's an immediate move from discouraged to encouraged. Paul Can pray and be thankful and rejoice, even surrounded by all these crazy circumstances. And he can even encourage and delight in the Philippians and their communion, even though we're going to see the Philippians are not perfect, because he knows that their faith, as well as this work, the furtherance of the gospel, is not dependent upon him or them. Paul can rejoice because a good work has begun. They are partners in the gospel, the good news, because, of first, because first a good work began in them, and that work began in them solely by the work of God. Again, if you remember back to Acts 16, the Philippians would have had no problem understanding that it was God who began this work in them. Yeah. Remember 1614, the first lady we meet in Philippi, a woman named Lydia. And we saw it how she was saved, not she believed, and so then she was born again, but God opened her heart, and then she believed. God initiates, she responds. And we're explaining a lot this idea that regeneration, new birth, new life, precedes faith, our trust. In our belief. Think about the slave girl that we met, oppressed by demons, wanting nothing to do with the gospel, and God intervenes through Paul and casts the demons out and sets her free. The, the text doesn't tell us, but I want to believe that she was then saved as well. Then there's the Philippine jailer, minding his own business, doing his job, supernatural earthquake, in- quake, introduced to Paul, what must I do to be saved? only believe. God initiated and God intervened in each case. He begins the work of saving individual souls, and he begins the work of creating a communion of those saved individual souls. A church, as we looked at in great detail two weeks ago, it is God who plants, who starts, and who begins the Philippian Church. And he begins at first by saving sinners. And we are convinced, and I am convinced that this is so important that we understand that that salvation is his work from beginning to end. Grace means that God does it. And again, I I belabor. this point, I guess, in part because of my own baggage and my own background, but I had it wrong for so long and I struggled for so long in part because of this misunderstanding. I thought salvation was dependent upon me and my will and my decision and my choice. The only problem with that was that I knew me. I knew how fickle and faithless I often was. I knew how changeable I was. I knew how weak and wicked. If it was dependent upon me, if it began with me, I couldn't see how that offered me any hope or any assurance. So thank God for this verse that it is he who begins the good work. And follow Paul's argument here. Paul is eminently logical. He said, if God is perfect in all that he does... If he cannot do wrong, if he cannot fail, if he begins something, then he will. He has to, by his very nature, by necessity, complete it. All must be well. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Guys, that's the only place that you will find assurance. That is the only place that you will find confidence. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his work from beginning to end. And if it is his work, that means that I, in all my fickleness and struggle and doubt and weakness and weariness and sin, that means I cannot mess it up because it's not dependent upon me. Thank God that I do not have the power within me to thwart God's plans. And, again, not using that as an excuse for sin, but the opposite, thank God also that part of those plans, as we'll look at later in the book, is his plan to fix and change those sinful things about me. The fact that it's grace at the beginning and that it's grace at the end implies that it's also grace in the middle. We're good with past grace. We get that. forgiven for our sins. We love the idea of future grace, glorification, Christ coming back. We get it. I think we really struggle with the middle. I think we really struggle with present grace, changing grace, transforming grace, Christ copying grace, grace works. God is molding and shaping and sanctifying me into the image of Christ. Sometimes he uses mufflers next door. Sometimes he uses my kids and my wife. Um, Sometimes he uses all kinds of different things. But what he's doing every day in my life is making me more like Christ. And man, I have a long way to go. But because of this verse, because of God, I know that I will get there. Not because of me, but because of him. That is my only hope. And so I press on. We've been seeing in the book of Hebrews, in Bible study, our need to endure, our need to persevere. And yes, you must persevere, but you will persevere in Christ because God will preserve the wonderfully comforting fifth point of Calvinism, the, the perseverance of the saints, I think could be better titled The Preservation of the Saints. And I thought I came up with that myself, but I Googled it and it was Sproul. Sproul did everything first. Um, but The Preservation of the Saints, because it's God who does it. Right? Our hope from beginning to end is Him. That's the confidence that we all share. He will hold us fast. He preserves us. He begins and he completes. And that produces joy. The settled conviction that all is well because it's in his hands and not mine. That gives me confidence. Not in myself, but in him. And we share that together because he doesn't just get me there. He gets us there. And here's where the English fails us. Here's maybe where we need a word like you right? Because we read all these you's as talking to us as individuals, but it doesn't actually say that in the Greek. The Greek you is plural. He who began a good work in you all will complete that work in you all. And we share this Confidence, And you, singular, may lack this confidence at times, which is why you, singular, need you, plural, to remind you and to encourage you and to come alongside you when you lack this confidence. We share a communion in confidence. Last point, quickly, number four. We share a communion in grace. Verse seven. I wasn't sure if we should stop at seven or eight. It's arguable that eight goes with seven and nine starts a new thought, but I want to stop at seven and I want to save eight because we don't have time, but also because it emphasizes Paul's great love for the Philippians that leads him to then pray for their love. So we're going to look at love next time. Uh, So with that in mind, look at verse seven. Paul starts off by saying that it is right for him to feel this way about them. And in our minds, that connects perfectly well with the yearning and the affection and the love that's coming in 8 and 9, right? It's all about the feels. But that's not what Paul is actually saying in verse 7. The word that the ESV translates feels is phroneo, and Paul loves this word in the book of Philippians. He repeats it a lot, and that means this word is important. Look down at 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's the same as verse 7. Look at 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves. Same word. Look over at 3.15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. 3.19. Those who are enemies of Christ have their minds set on earthly things. Every single one of those is the same word, froneo, and every other time it's used, it's translated as mind or think. So the King James of 1, seven says it is meat, and there's the problem with the King James. No one uses or knows what the word meat means, not meat like you can go eat meat, but in-e-e-t, meat, in the sense of it is right or it is fitting. He says it is meat for me to think this way about you. Because there's also some of the good of the King James. Every now and then, since it's old, its choice of translation isn't as affected by the same influence that some of our modern translations are. So why does the ESV, which I love, it's my favorite translation, again, no translation is perfect, but why does the ESV translate the word feel in verse 7? Well, I assume it's because of what comes next. Look at 7. It's right for him to feel this way because I hold you in my heart. And I bet they chose feel because today when we think heart, we immediately associate it with emotion and with feeling. In our overly romanticized and sentimentalized culture, we hear heart, we think emotions and feels. Paul feels this way about them. But that's not what it says. It says he thinks this way about them, and I think the distinction is important. Now, Paul does have great love and affection for them. We'll see that in verse 8. He's going to choose the strongest words possible to describe how he feels for them. He yearns. He longs for them. He desires them greatly. It says with great affection. But again, we read affection, and we think heart. But in verse 8... Instead of affections, the Greek word is literally just guts. Literally it says, I yearn for you with the guts of Christ Jesus. Why is that? Well, because the ancients are smarter than us. They understand better than we do where all this stuff happens. You feel things deep in your gut. So guts for them became the metaphor for emotions and affections, which again, makes sense. If you feel something in your heart, go see Tabitha or Ruth because you may be having a heart attack. We don't feel in our heart. We feel in our guts. where We have butterflies in our stomach. We have a pit in our stomach. So Paul does feel great affection and emotion for them. We want to feel that affection and emotion for one another. It's good, but understood rightly and in the right way order. Paul thinks first this way about them. Verses three through six, that's how he thinks about them. And it is that right thinking rooted in their communion in prayer and the gospel and confidence that then leads to his great love and affection for them. Your emotions are always a result of what you most love and what you most value. Always trace your emotions, track them, what is this telling you about what you value and what you care most about? It tells you what your mind is set upon and what you most desire. And so Paul tells us in Colossians 3:2, set your mind on the things that are above. That mindset leads them to the right feeling and heart set. So Paul thinks of them. He thinks of their communion that produces joy and affection. And so he treasures them. He holds them in his heart. Why? One more reason. Finally, the last thing. I'm just going to have to cut it off. It's because of their communion in grace. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the fence and confirmation of the gospel. That's koinonia. They have communion in grace. Grace, they're sharing something in common, something that unites and binds together. And here's where that something is. It is grace. We are bound together by the common bond of grace. Saving grace, God's beginning, middle, and ending unmerited favor. We're bound together by the fact that none of us did or deserved the life we have in Christ. We are bound together in that we are, all of us, sinners, sinners. All of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. But for those of us in Christ, all of us were caused to be born again by the gracious and giving power of God. He did it, not you. And that's the plural, you all. We all deserve death. And in Christ, we get undeserved life. That's a bond that will unite us together. Grace and grace alone. And again, God's grace to us is Christ. So Christ and Christ alone is what binds us together. There's great diversity in this room, and that's a wonderful thing. But it's not about what distinguishes us from one another. It's about what identifies us with one another. And the only identity that matters is that you find your identity in Christ. And that identity in Christ, you'll then find community with the people of Christ. Identity leads to community. That's what we share in Christ. A communion in prayer, in the work of the gospel, in confidence and in grace. Has God begun this good work in you? Are you in Christ? Are you trusting in him and him alone? His grace, um, his effort, not yours, for your salvation. If so, then that faith, that gift of God unites you to him, and then it unites you to your brothers and sisters around you. Identity to community. And that then leads to the mission. We partner, we seek, we share um, with those around us because we are convinced that the gospel is of first importance. We have the identity and the community and in that we rejoice and we give thanks to God. Uh, Let's close this time uh, by doing that as we go to him in a word of, of prayer. Father, we thank you for the great fellowship, the great communion that we have with one another as the church. Father, we thank you first and foremost for the great union that we have with Jesus Christ um, as a result of his work and not our own. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you uh, that you begin works, and every work you begin, you always complete, you finish, you end. And so I pray that we would find great confidence and great hope in Jesus. Help us to understand what it is to have union with him and communion with him and then communion with one another. And we ask and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.